those, for those who might be confused, that actually, even though there was no mention of the Cleveland Browns, that actually was Chris Lighty. Yeah. Um, really quickly, before we jump into God's Word, I'd love to invite Kingsley Baker and Carson Vaughn and Zach Hudson Bozarth up here. They each emailed me today and said we would love to be, um, we would love to come up and be embarrassed in front of the whole church. Um, that's not what happened. But they all graduated from high school, and so if you guys could give them a round of applause. And we're going to give you guys actually these gifts, um, a wonderful devotional guide that I hope you will take with you and guide you in your walk with Jesus in the next chapter of your life. And I'd love to pray for you. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful uh, for these three here, for bringing them through childhood and into adulthood. We ask, Lord, for your guidance and your care for your spirit to walk with them and for them to keep in step with that spirit, Lord, as they move into the next chapter of their lives. We're grateful for your love and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Well, we are uh, just starting today a series on the fruit of the spirit. And we're going to go through each of the fruits that are listed in Galatians 5. We talked about and around that passage for a while. And now we're going to dive in really deep. And we're going to look at each one of these things that are listed. And we're going to typically actually dive into one uh, particular scripture that has to do with that concept. Sometimes we'll be all over the Bible. But most of the time we'll kind of land in one particular place. And where we're going to land today, even though we will jump around a little bit, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, it's a really famous passage on love. If you have ever attended a wedding, you have probably heard this. But let me invite you to listen now to God's word with fresh ears as the Apostle Paul tells us exactly what love is. I'm going to read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a, ding, or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and will actually end here. Love never ends. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We ask that you would open uh, our blind eyes and Open our ears that oftentimes have a hard time hearing what you have to say to us. Soften our hearts that we might hear you, see you, know you. And in doing so, Lord, uh, might love you. Uh, Lord, change us by the power of your spirit and through your holy word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, uh, an, an author and philosopher, modern philosopher, a guy named Alain de Botton. 
I'm not French, so I'm probably not saying that perfectly right, but, um, but really a fascinating guy, really good, some great books he's written, one called uh, Status Anxiety that's worth checking out, or The Architecture of Happiness, also a really good book. But he's written this um, really great uh, article or essay called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person where he kind of explores what marriage is and love is. And I'm just going to read you a couple of things, actually, that come out of not that essay, but an interview that he gave about that essay. In fact, Debutant is going to be our guide through most of this sermon. He'll pop up a few times. Listen to what he says here. We are meant to always just follow our feelings. That's the way that our culture thinks. If you keep following your feelings, you will almost certainly make a big mistake in your life. First of all, there is a distinction between loving and being loved. We all start off in life by knowing a lot about being loved. Being loved is the fun bit. That's when somebody brings you something on a tray and asks you how your day at school was, etc. And we grew up thinking that that's what's going to happen in an adult relationship. It's an understandable mistake, but it's a very tragic mistake. And it leads us not to pay attention to the other side of the equation, which is to love. Baton is really asking, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to actually love another person? What's involved in that? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 gives us about 16 different things in what it means to love, different expressions, angles of what love is. I'm going to spare you a 16-point sermon this morning, and we're going to look just at five of those things, but we're going to dive into those really quickly this morning and run through them. So let's jump in. The first, the thing that we see about what it means to love is that love acts. Love acts. You heard Debaton even say it, right? That the general idea in our culture, what we grow up thinking, what we see in all of our movies and our books is that love is a feeling. Love feels, right? But Paul starts out by saying love is patient and kind. Now, I want you to just think back on the times when you have been patient or kind to somebody else and reflect on how that felt to you. It probably wasn't the best feeling. Being patient does not generally feel good. And isn't it interesting too here that you can see kind of where all of this mixes up, where Paul, who lists the fruits of the Spirit, one of them being love, another one is patience, actually describes love as being patient as well. They're all intertwined. But patience and kindness, that's an action, isn't it? It's not just a feeling, it's a doing of patience. It's a doing of kindness. Listen to the words from John 13, where we see actually the way that Jesus describes this. We say... uh, John tells us, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Friends, that is not a description of Jesus' warm and fuzzy feelings until he died. It is not a description of how he just sat around and pondered how wonderful he loved, how, much, how wonderfully he loved his disciples. It's a description of what he was about to go do. First, to get down on his hands and knees and wash their feet, and then, very shortly after, to go to the cross and lay down his life, to act out of love. Jesus says, no no greater love has man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus, acting in love, went to lay down his life, not only for his friends there, but for you and I as well. 
And of course, as we walk through all of this, we're going to see. And as we walk through this summer, we're going to see that all of these fruits of the Spirit are fruits that the Spirit produces in us, but they're also things that have been shown to us. Jesus has been patient and kind to us. Jesus has acted in love toward us. And that is what actually spurns our love, our action in response. Now, you've probably seen the, the Disney movie uh, Beauty and the Beast. It's a great movie. But um, you may not know that Beauty and the Beast, is a, it starts as a, as a French fairy tale. Uh, first written in, I think, 1740. Pretty old story. In fact, there are multiple adaptations, I think 10 film adaptations in some way or another of that story. And what is so gripping about that story is that it is the action of love that is so transformative. It is the action of love that makes the other person lovely. Think about this. How does the beast start out? Not very lovely. He is transformed into something beautiful, warm, glorious, not out of his own action, but actually by the love of another. In the Disney movie, it's Belle, who by her love actually makes another lovely. We are not lovely in of ourselves, and we are not loved because we are lovely. That's not the way it works between us and God. He does not look upon us and say, there is somebody who is worthy of love. I will shower that person with my love. No, he looks upon us in our brokenness, in our sin, and he says, I will pour out my love on this person so that they might become lovely. And that's the way our love for others works in return. That's the way that we are called, actually, to move toward others, not to respond to their beauty, but to actually beautify them in our action, to act in love toward them that makes them lovely. So there's our first thing is that love acts. Secondly, love serves. Paul says that love does not insist on its own way. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you can flip it there or you can just read it on the screen here. This is what Paul says about Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus did not insist on his own way, his rightful place was his throne in heaven, and he humbled himself and left that throne to come and serve you and I. And that is the same kind of love that we're called to give in response, to love others in a way that does not insist on our own way, but actually humbles ourselves. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, maybe you remember Josh Hamilton played for the Texas Rangers. He was a part of their 2010 and 11 uh, uh, league pennant uh, winning teams. And Hamilton throughout his whole life, and even still it looks like, has struggled with addiction of some form or another, alcohol and drug abuse. And he's kind of been up and down in that journey, but he had led his, his teammates into that such that amazing things would happen. 
So during the 2010 and 2011, after they had won, you know, the pennant championship, you know, you see these images of people, of teams, they go in to the locker room after they win and they're partying and everything is great and they pop a bottle of champagne and everybody's drinking champagne and it's wonderful. The Rangers, though, instead popped a bottle of ginger ale, not champagne. They popped a bottle of ginger ale because their friend and teammate, Josh Hamilton, was an alcoholic. He wouldn't drink. And they said, you know what? We're going to give of our own selves, our own desires, in order to serve and love you. Now, friends, that means that insisting on your own way sometimes means that you don't insist on your own way that could potentially even be right. Jesus would have been right to stay and remain on his throne. There is nothing wrong with drinking champagne and celebration, okay? They were not wrong. They were laying down their desires so that they might serve their friend. They were setting them aside so that they might love another. David Brooks is a a columnist for the New York Times. He's written a book pretty recently. Maybe some of you have read it called The Second Mountain, really a fantastic book. Uh, he talks about these two mountains in your life. The first is kind of the, the self-made mountain, the thing, the building up your own self. But really there's a second stage, which is to pour yourself out for others. Listen to the way that he talks about people who are actually acting in this way. It is a paradox that when people are finding themselves, they often seem... When they're finding themselves, they often have a sensation that they're letting go and surrendering themselves. You hear that paradox? When they're finding themselves, they oftentimes have the sensation that they're actually surrendering, surrendering themselves. You meet a person in need. At first, you just commit to help them a little, an hour a week. It's no big deal. But then you get to know and care about the person, and the hooks of commitment are set. Now you'll do what needs to be done. At this point, you just let go of the wheel. You stop asking, what do I want? And you start asking, what is life asking of me? And so you respond. That is actually a picture of what it means to not insist on your own way, to love those around you, to stop asking, what do I want out of life? And to start asking, in a more pointed way for Christians, what does God desire of me? How has he called me to pour myself out for others in ways that are probably going to be difficult. So love acts, love serves. Here's the third thing, is that love bears. Love bears all things, in fact, Paul says. Listen to John chapter 3 here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The most famous passage in the entire Bible says that God bears us in love. That Jesus bears our sins upon his own shoulders. That he bears the weight of sin and death upon himself so that we might be shown God's love. Here's Debaton again in that interview. He starts off the interview actually by saying this. Does anyone in this room think that they're quite easy to live with? I know that you're not easy to live with, and the reason is that you're a homo sapien, and therefore you are not easy to live with. No one is. But there's a wall of silence that surrounds us from a deeper acquaintance with what is actually so difficult about us. 
Our friends don't want to tell us. Why would they bother? They just want a pleasant evening out. Our friends know more about us and more about our flaws. Probably after 10 minutes of an acquaintance, a stranger will know more about your flaws than you might learn about yourself over 40 years of your life. Our capacity to intuit what is wrong with us is very weak. Our parents don't tell us very much. Why would they? They love us too much. They know. They conceived us. They followed us from the crib. They know what's wrong with us, but they're not going to tell us. They just want, us, they just want to be sweet. And our ex-lovers, a vital source of knowledge, they know. Absolutely, they know. But do you remember that speech that they gave? It was moving at the time when they said that they just wanted a little more space and they were attracted to travel and were interested in the culture of Southeast Asia. Nonsense. They thought lots of things were wrong with you, but they weren't going to be bothered to tell you. They just wanted out of there. You and I are a mess, <laughs> is what Debaton is saying. You and I are a big fat mess, and most people don't want to sit down and tell us what a big fat mess we are. And to make it worse, we actually aren't all that good at looking at the mess of our lives ourselves. So guess what? You are going to have to bear with a lot of people. You're going to have to bear with others who don't know what a big mess they are, and they are going to have to bear with you. You're going to have to do things sometimes like forget that incredibly hurtful thing that that person said two and a half years ago. Or you're going to have to do things like hold your tongue when you really want to respond with that sharp remark. Or you're going to have to do things like just sit with somebody and listen to their pain even though they've already told you that same pain four times this week. You will bear with them because you love them. And that's what love does. It bears. It carries burdens. It sits with people in their difficulty. All right, fourth thing. Love needs. Love is needy. Does that kind of surprise you? Paul says that love does not envy or boast. He says that it is not arrogant. What is the opposite of arrogance? It's humility. And humility actually boils down in many ways to feeling like you are needy. Now, of course, neediness can go awry. Love at some extent, to, to some extent, at some point, when it becomes too needy, needs to be reexamined. But friends, love is actually based on our need. Jesus actually, in describing his love for us, says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest because I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. Jesus describes himself, the great lover of our souls describes himself as humble. And friends, actually our neediness is the key to us being able to respond in love. Listen to what the psalmist says. This is the way that he begins Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Why does he love the Lord? Because he's needy and God has actually met his need. The commentator Matthew Henry says this, we have many reasons for loving the Lord, but are most affected by his loving kindness when relieved out of deep distress. The times that we respond most in love is when we understand our own need 
and we actually see that that need has been met. All right, here's the last one, is that love lasts. Paul really ends his whole string of what love is by saying that love never ends, never ends. What we didn't read, the end of that passage, Paul says, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Paul talks about faith, he talks about hope, but when he comes to talk about something that doesn't end, he only kind of settles on love. Isn't that interesting? There's a reason for that. Before the foundation of the world, God as a trinity existed in a loving, beautiful community of himself. Eternal, pre-existing love between Father, Son, and Spirit. In that state, there's no need for faith, is there? Because there's no doubt. There's, there's nothing that actually needs to be held to in faith. There's no need for hope because there's nothing to hope for. Everything is fantastic. It's perfect. But there is love. And when Jesus returns to make all things new, to restore that kind of beauty, there will be no need for faith because we won't have to wonder we won't have to wait. We won't have to hold on to something future because it'll be present. There will be no need for hope because there will be nothing to hope for. We will have it. But there will be love. Love will last forever. It has lasted forever from before and it will last forever to the end. Love never fails. I had a chance this year to, um, to take two really fun trips. I went to... Uh, some of you know this, to Havana, Cuba, which was kind of crazy, and to London, England, both kind of centered around my brother getting married, and got to see really beautiful places and got to actually uh, be in really old places. Um, we, think about, we think about New Braunfels, Texas being old, and we're so excited. We have the oldest bakery and dance hall and all that, but you know, you go to a place like Europe or like Cuba, and you really know what old is. We toured a castle, you know, in, in Havana that was built in the 16th century. So, you know, you're walking on these stones that were laid in the 1500s and seeing these gun turrets that, um, that existed before there were guns, you know, to fight off pirates coming, you know, into the Caribbean. And then, you know, when we were in London, we walked by and, and saw the, tour, the Tower of London. This is a castle that was built by William the Conqueror, the, the first Norman king of England in 1070. 1070. That's a long, long time ago. I mean, just to give you a little bit of perspective, that's 250 years, give or take, before the mechanical clock was invented. Okay, so when they, the people who lived in that castle for 250 years told time with a sundial. Okay, it's 500 years or so before there was a printing press or before the violin was invented. It's 800 years before Edison invented the light bulb. And it's more than 1,000 years, 1,000 years before things like cell phones and the internet were invented. And guess what? It's still standing. It's still there. It lasts. But it pales in comparison to the lasting nature of love. It pales in comparison to the lasting permanence and power of God's love for us and even, yes, for our love for others in return. And of course, the place that we find this permanence the most is in the person of love, whose love 
lasts always. I want you to do a little mental experiment with me for a second. It will, it will be both convicting and encouraging. Okay, take this, uh, this passage from 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says love is and then lists all of those things, right? And then just as you're thinking about it, insert your name where the word love is. Derek is patient. Derek is kind. On, on, and on. And my children at this point are probably covering their ears saying, eh, I don't want to hear that. That will make you nervous, won't it? to try and read those things about yourself and realize, wow, swing and a miss on those. But here's what you can do is put Jesus' name in. And you get things like this. Jesus is patient and Jesus is kind. He walked faithfully with those who continually doubted him. He healed the sick and the diseased. He fed the hungry. He moved in kindness toward the outcast. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus did not envy his position of power, but he humbled himself, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, even to death. Jesus did not boast, but rather got on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. The creator of feet picked up a towel and started washing. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. He is the epitome of humility. He associated himself with the lowly and the marginalized and the outcast. He was born in poverty amongst animals. Jesus did not insist on his own way, but rather laid down his life, going to the cross willingly. Not my will, but yours be done, he said. Jesus was not resentful, but rather said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus did not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoiced in the truth of salvation, the triumph of mercy. Jesus, whose name and very being is truth. Jesus bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things. Bearing the sin of the world on his shoulders, he endured the punishment that we deserve so that we might receive his love. The love of Jesus never ends, friends. That is the, what we get this morning. Will you pray with me that the Lord enable us to believe that even more today? Father in heaven, God who himself is love, uh, we ask that you would increase our love for you and for others, that we would our hearts would be drawn to what Jesus says is really at the very center of your law, to love you and to love our neighbor, that we would pour ourselves out in action, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would um, put ourselves in front of others, Lord, as, as needy people, even when that's really hard, Lord, that we would um, move toward you in humility and that in some tiny reflection of the lastingness and the permanence of your love, that our love would also be faithful. We pray all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.